Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm super excited for today's topic and guest. I have Brian Will on the show. He's an author and serial entrepreneur. And Brian wrote the book, The Dropout, Multimillionaire, and Know the Psychology of Sales and Negotiations. And he's had seven ventures that have valued at upwards of a half a billion dollars in his career. And what caught my eye was specifically his book, The Dropout Multimillionaire. And my conversation with Brian was amazing. I personally had a lot of fun because one of the reasons my father started our family business is because he dropped out of college. I mean, he barely graduated high school. And the mantra my dad told me is that as long as I could wake up, provide value to people on and listen and just take action, I'll be just fine in this world. And I find a lot of interesting similarities to what I watched growing up and what was possible through my dad's entrepreneurial ventures and then, and therefore my own, but also being able to tie being able to talk to Brian about his experience emotionally and what actually happened with the successful ventures that he had that are wildly successful and the ones that didn't work, how he emotionally handled them, what he did afterwards and what he did after he lost everything and had to sell his couch that he was given as a gift from his uh, in-laws. And so there was a lot covered in this. And I think Everybody that's an entrepreneur struggles with varying degrees of, you know, the self-talk, but then how do we deal with adversity and how do we keep going and keep designing the life that we want through being an entrepreneur? I just absolutely love this and I think you're going to love it as well. And one thing to think about as you're listening to the conversation that Brian and I are having is if you are feeling stuck in a rut, if you feel like you want to take more cash out of the company or you want to grow the equity value of your company to make it all worth it, you're sick of relying on your gut for decisions or you're sick of half-baked data and how operational data ties to financials, my team will do a complimentary financial assessment where we'll plug in our dashboard, analyze your numbers, and then show you the dashboard with our thoughts in the spirit of trying to figure out if it might make sense working together in our dashboard plus coaching offering. All you have to do to figure out if that is something that might make sense is go down to the show notes, schedule a discovery call with me and my team where I can ask you some questions, figure out if it's a fit or not. And if it's a fit, then you can schedule your first complimentary call for the financial assessment with my team. And the link is in the show notes below. I just want to say thanks again, everybody, for your support. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And without further ado, here's Brian Will. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Brian, how are we today? Ryan, thank you for having me on the Intentional Growth Podcast. I'm excited about this one. This is going to be fun today. I'm excited as well. We, we started kicking off um, with some, we have some parallel universe stories, it sounds like. 100%. And I was giving you my background, but then my background is attributed to my father who got me into entrepreneurship. And I got your reach out from uh, your uh, your PR team yep. and I don't take a lot of them. 
And I, I saw the drop up my millionaire and I was like, I'm fascinated <laughs> immediately. So I gotta tell you a story about that get, too, if we get a chance. Yeah, well, why don't you just give us a, uh, like a 50,000 foot flyby, Brian, of like what you're up to, kind of your background. I want to unpack of just the journey of like why you were making decisions and where you are today and kind of how the whole thing unfolded. Oh gosh. Okay. So two minutes started out as a kid who failed out of high school, not because I was dumb, because I was ADHD and didn't care, came from a bad childhood. Got kicked out of the house at 18, had no place to go, joined the military, got off active duty, tried to hold a job, couldn't because I was a terrible employee. So I figured I might as well work for myself, right? Started my first company at 21. It was landscaping, built it up, did really well until it didn't. It crashed and burned, uh, learned a hell of a lot of good lessons in that one. Changed industries, went into insurance. That's another story. Uh, a year and a half into that, it was the dawn of the internet. And we had somehow developed a... Uh, a, um, I called it a virtual sales center. Today, they call it a direct-to-consumer call center. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I had two internet companies come to me, and one of them snatched me up really quickly. And we started selling insurance online as opposed to doing it face-to-face, -face, which is what we used to do. That company ended up going public. Uh, we developed another platform that sells Medicare, blah, blah, blah. Uh, got out of that, started another company back in the online insurance space. Um, that one also got uh, acquired by a venture capital group. And today that powers, I think, nine different states under the ACA. Wow. Uh, started another company, which was essentially a paper performance online lead gen company, online marketing, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, three years into that, we got acquired by a PE firm. That was an $80 million acquisition. That was the big one we did. Uh, and then it's weird. And you've probably experienced this a little bit, Ryan. Once you've sold a few companies or even one like yours, suddenly the industry looks at you as an expert right? Because you've, you've sold something. And so clearly you must be a genius. And I can remember standing in my first boardroom on a consulting project after we'd sold the company, talking to the CEO and the CFO and the CTO and the CIO of this multi-billion dollar company. And the thought ran through my mind, five years ago, I was probably mowing your grass. <laughs> and now I'm standing here telling you what's wrong with your sales organization. So fascinating the way the world turns, right? So did right, consulting right. for a few years, started another company, sold it for nothing. It was a bomb. Got into the restaurant business because I like to eat and drink for free. Uh, I've gone through 15 <laughs> restaurants. I've got four today, a uh, small chain I own. Got into the real estate business. I own properties across Georgia and Florida. Uh, wrote three books. Two of them are Wall Street Journal bestsellers. But what I'm excited about today is about six months ago, I launched a consulting company. Uh, not too terribly different than Arcona, but uh, you guys are a little more specialized in the CFO, fractional CFO space. Yeah, than the me. finance but, space. You're more yeah, like but, leadership but, and sales. Yeah, working with these entrepreneurs and, and watching their eyes light up when they see how things work. And all of a sudden, sales uh, close ratios go up and ROIs go up and marketing dollars go down. And, you know, I, I've turned a 75 million top line into 150 million in 10 months and turned a wow. company that was losing a a million dollars a month as a public company. We took it from a million dollar a month loss to profitability in 18 months. And just watching people go through this process to me is just fascinating. So That's we awesome. built this consulting coaching company, which is what I'm excited about doing today. Started a podcast, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of different careers, a lot of different, a lot of different stuff I've done. That's the 50,000. A lot of threads to pull. Yeah. No, I, I no, that was so helpful, uh, Brian, because first of all, it's helpful because my team and everybody's like, Hey, Ryan, you got to shut up with your long intros and just get right to the guest. <laughs> and you, and you just did, you did a lot of the work for me there. Well, and, and what I think is super fascinating, Brian, and that I want to unpack is the, the why and how you got to where you are and where you're headed. And I want to go back to like, 
you know, I dropped out of high school or, and I had, let me, let me just experience share because I don't even know if the listeners ever heard this. So I was, I mean, I would, they've, I was a bad student because of the same reasons. Like I literally yep. couldn't pay attention, Brian. Like people had set these books down. I'm like, why am I supposed to read this? And they couldn't give me any logical yep. explanation that made sense to me. Not to say that it wasn't actually logical, but I say that because I got to this experience where I was, uh, I was in 10th grade and my, there was a, the girl's soccer coach who was also the math teacher. He pulled me out and we, I was going through a bunch of family difficulties. And the guy looked at me and he said, you're never going to amount to anything. And yep, I was like, got those holy, people in my life. And I was just like, holy crap. I mean, like, hey, not, but like, not like, hey, what's going on? Not, none of that. And so I have this, like, like I have this experience that I, I don't know. It's very, it sounds like it's somewhat different than yours, but go back to yourself. And I'm curious on how have you processed everything that you just described? If you were to go back to your 16 year old self and be like, yo, <laughs> here's what I've done. How would you react or like, what would you have said to yourself? You know, I spent, uh, from the age of about, I had a bad childhood and I didn't get into how bad it was, but, um, and then getting kicked out of the house at 18, no help, nothing. I had a chip on my shoulder, the size of a, you know, a VW. Right. And it was because in my mind, it was all those people that told me that I was useless and I was never going to succeed. It was my teachers who failed me and my friends who laughed at me and my parents who, you know, did what they did. And so you start, you go through life with this thought process of, and what drove me personally was I had to prove to the world that I wasn't this loser that everybody said I was, and everybody said that I was going to end up doing nothing. So mm -hmm. that was my driving force. It was anger. Honestly, people ask mm -hmm. me, what was my drive when I was younger? And I tell them it was anger. I was angry at the world and I was angry at people telling me I couldn't do things. And I was angry because I wasn't doing things and I was failing over and over and you know, what's funny about that, Ryan, is at some point after we had sold the companies, I'd made a, a bazillion dollars and everything was cool. And I'd, I'd won the game, so to speak. It, you start doing some self-analysis and you come to realize that it, it wasn't the world you were fighting with for 20 years. It was really your own self-image. I, I wasn't, trying to, prove, I wasn't trying to prove to the world who I was. I was trying to prove to myself that I wasn't who they told me I was. They did. They stopped thinking about me 20 years ago, but they were still living in my head, man. So that that's a little self-realization you got to go through. Well, yes. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Agreed. How did you deal with that? How did you get to <laughs> like, because was the whole still there? You got the money. And because I mean, I, I the hundreds of podcasts, yep. Ryan, like so many people have similar experiences, which is why I'm so fascinated with this topic is uh, how, like, were you just sitting there where you like have become financially free and you're like, okay, like, but there was still something missing. How did you react? Yeah, I'm going to take that? you down a road. You probably don't expect here, but, uh, I was, yeah. I was not present in my marriage. Uh, I did not treat my wife properly. I tell business owners this today all the time. Don't win the world and lose everything that's important to you in your life. Wow. Okay. So, I ended up having, I ended up getting divorced after we sold the companies. We made all this money because I was dark to dark seven days a week, right? Morning to night, dark to dark. I, I was not present in my marriage. I treated my wife like an employee because she worked for me. I didn't get to go to all my kids stuff because I was too busy worried about trying to succeed and, and win the world and make money. And, and unfortunately, when we sold the companies, I remember telling my wife at the time, I said, Hey man, I win. I'm more successful than anybody I know. Let's go party and have fun and, and do all the cool things we would. And she said, you've been an ass for 20 years. I don't want to go have fun with you anymore. 
and I got divorced. Well, before well, I got did divorced, you expect that at all? Did you, did you know that was coming? Do you think? Uh, we knew the marriage was falling apart at some point. Um, but as part of that process, we started going through counseling to see if we could put it back together. And it was mm-hmm. through that counseling that I started dealing with the childhood issues that made me realize mm-hmm. all the things that I've now come to realize. So my self-reflection was not done voluntarily. It was done because I had hit rock bottom in my personal life. So I know so many people that they're super successful, but their personal lives are crap. And yeah, I was well, one of them. The, the, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing that, Brian, because um, there's a, that that's honestly the point of the podcast and the mm-hmm. show is like, how do we design our business, our life, our money all to accomplish what we want, whatever that is. And like, I remember Brian, I was at this conference. It was for privately held business owners. And for some reason they got this corporate executive who was the CEO of Red Lobster. And he had been for through three private equity rounds. And this guy was at like the pinnacle of his career. Brian. <laughs> and like, just like, honestly, he said I more than any times I could count in that presentation. But then some guy in the audience goes, Sir, what did you have to sacrifice to get here? And he goes, well, I was there for a couple of the big events with my kids. And I was like, well, of course, we, we all have 168 hours. And then we've got whatever time and energy or time and, or, uh, I'm sorry, money that we can apply to get where we want to go. But like, what, what are the sacrifices? And that's where I, I think what your story is so powerful because there's always another side and we don't share that very often mm-hmm. of like what we're giving up. Yeah. It's called Facebook happy, right? Everybody looks great on Facebook, but they're inside. It's not working. And, and, and it's, you know, we start businesses and entrepreneurs and we build them because we think we're going to create a lifestyle. I say people start businesses for two reasons. They either want to make a lot of money or they want to create a lifestyle. Either one of those, they can't have in a job. The problem is entrepreneurs start doing this and they sacrifice the very thing that they were building the business for in the first place. I'm going to build a business so I have a lifestyle and fun. I mean, my family can do all these things. And then they work a hundred hours a week and they don't have a lifestyle and they ruin their marriage and they don't see their kids. And at the end of the day, they may win the world, but they lose everything that's important. And you got to get mm-hmm. in there and go, Hey, 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 listen, if I could go back, I would tell you that everything that I did was probably not worth it because I would rather be married today and have, you know, have done all the things that I could mm-hmm. have done. But I was a guy who, you know, would come home at night and I was tired and we'd go to a party and I'd leave her there and I'd go home because I wanted to finish working and she'd stay and have fun. That was stupid. I mean, just crazy stuff I did to, to, to chase this dollar that once I got it, you know, I lost some of the things that, that I was doing it for in the first place. It's, uh, if you were to go, I, 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 I'm speechless because I, I, I believe that that's very true to, to a lot of people how far the, down the road they get before they course correct, I think is the biggest question. Mm-hmm. And when you look back, Brian, we're like, cause I mean, you, you've accomplished some crazy, awesome things, you know, from a business mechanical perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Like playing the game, but obviously there were some sacrifices. If you were to go back, whether it was the, the landscaping business or different area or like different ventures, could you go back and say, Hey, if, if this decision was maybe looked at a little bit different, how you would have stayed within the the white lines of what you're trying to accomplish now? So this is a very tough question. And I'm going to give you a non-standard answer because the standard answer is, oh yeah, if I could go back, I would change this and this and I've been more successful and Mm -hmm. more. Well, guess what? That wasn't my journey. And just because I'd made a different decision doesn't mean it would have turned out the way it turned out for me. The decisions I made got me where I am. If I'd made different decisions, who knows where I'd be? My journey was my journey. 
I can't go back and change that. So I'm not going to sit here and regret it. I love it. Cause that's how I answer the question too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like it. So, all right. That, that's, I, I do really enjoy that. But when I think about, let's go back to like how you had to, um, like when you here, I know yeah, let me frame the question the right way. The motivation to prove to yourself that you were able to do all these things and be successful, not what everybody taught you. How do you keep something like that, that drive where you can eat glass? And like, I mean, you, you had said that you had scaled up this, uh, one of the companies that turned into nothing because of how, like mm -hmm. we have to keep going in the face of that kind of craziness. And that drive was driving mm -hmm. you. How do you do that? If you don't have that crazy drive, if you don't have that crazy drive then you're not going to do it, let's just start with that. You know, okay. If you were to, yeah, no, agreed. And agreed. And then how do we, how do we sheath or like contain that dark yeah. part that's so unhealthy? If you ever, if you ever read my first box, I call it my first box, my first book. It's <laughs> called, it. it's called I Give the Dumb Kids Hope. Okay. And it, it's not about other kids. It was about me. And there's a story behind it. And it's funny. But in that book, I talk about my anger box. And, and I had to take all that anger that was in me and shove it into a box and close the lid. Right. But when I needed it, I could crack that lid open just a little bit to let some of that out to get shit done, whether I needed <laughs> I to be it. driven forward yeah. or whether I, cause I could use it to motivate me. I could use it to, to make other people do things. It was, and then I have to close it back up cause I never wanted to let that thing go all the way open. Cause I'd turn into a raving lunatic, but that was what I had. I had that anger box and I, and, and it had a drive and a purpose and a goal. And that goal was to be rich. I hate to say it that mm -hmm. way, but that was the goal. Mm -hmm. Well, when I got there, and we sold that last company and suddenly I've got, you know, a 10,000 square foot house and a lake house and a beach house and an airplane and, you know, and all the cars you can imagine and boats and didn't have to work. All of a sudden I had everything you ever wanted in life. That drive in my mind actually went away. And I remember after selling the company, I used to tell people that I have no goals and I have no ambition anymore because I've worked so hard for so long to get here there's nothing left. There's nothing left inside me and I needed to take a break. And so mm -hmm. I tried to quit, which I've done a couple of times. But if you're an entrepreneur, what you know about yourself or what you will find out if you're in that situation is your brain never stops. And so I couldn't. <laughs> and so I started yeah, another that business. ADHD, that thing that the teachers didn't really exactly. like about it, right? <laughs> and so, I, and I'll give you, and this is a progression that goes through time, but I'll give you a little story. I was over, uh, you know who Richard Branson is? Mm -hmm. Okay. So he owns an island called Necker Island over in the BVI. And I was over there in July, spent five days over there. Unbelievable trip. No way. You were there. I love spent it. Spent a lot of time it. with Richard, sat down with him on multiple occasions in that five days. And we had some great conversations. And I asked him this question because it, it was his birthday. And I said, Richard, you're 73 years old and you own over a hundred companies and you work with young entrepreneurs and micro lending and you work with big stuff like shipping. I said, why are you still doing this? You're, you're worth billions of dollars. You live on an island where you have 20 people on staff that take care of your every whim. He would walk into the room and they'd walk over and hand him a drink and say, what else can we do for you? I mean, what? that's the that's the, the life that that's it. it's crazy, right? I said, yeah. "Why? Are, what motivates you to keep doing this? And by the way, this is one of the reasons I do what I do with my coaching. And he said, let me tell you something, Brian. If you have a talent or an ability, and that can be owning or building or running or teaching people how to run businesses. If you have a talent or ability and you can use that to make the world a better place, 
then you have an obligation to do that, to give back to the world that gave you everything you've got. And that's why I still do it. That's like a freaking mic drop moment. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, okay. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's tied into like my belief that, I mean, human beings have to wake up and move forward towards a goal or towards something. Otherwise we're like, yep. that's what we're, we're created to do that. Like the dopamine structure and everything that we're doing is moving towards something. And that's why the, the, the podcast used to be called life after business, Brian, like years and years ago, <laughs> because it was that like people would sell their identity. And then like the worst question you can ask someone is what do you do? And they would say, well, I used to. So there's this identity that's so tied into the original creation that they have. Mm-hmm. So going back to like, because of how many ventures you've had, and I, and I agree with Richard 100% about moving forward, but like, as, as you've evolved to understand that now, where, like, how did your identity evolve as you were doing these different ventures? Like, do you, do you kind of reflect back and see how it kind of was tied to these different, uh, different companies? Yeah. So I'm going to give you another little story. So this is one of my other mentors, his name's Paul Pills, or he lives out in, in, uh, Park City, Utah. And so I got there every year for a month and have, uh, and ski and, uh, he's uber successful. And I'm afraid we'd sold that company years ago. I remember I was sitting at lunch with him and he said, he said, Brian, what are you going to do next? He goes, you just sold your company. What are you gonna do next? And I said, Paul, I have no idea. And he goes, well, what are you passionate about? And I said, I don't even know what that means. What is passion? Like I, I just work. That's what I do. So I don't know what you mean by passion. And he said, okay, here's your deal. You're going to have to find something that you are passionate about. And you're going to have to find a way to give back or you will never be truly happy because money ain't going to do it. And I was like, and it took me five years of thinking about that before I figured out I have a passion for writing and for teaching and giving back to me. I got into politics. I'm on my local city council here. And so I get to help the people in my town, my neighbors and fellow business owners over here. So I have really strived to chase passions and give back. And that's what I've done. That's awesome. That's awesome. And when I think about like to the point where you're now giving back, you've had to sit in a lot of these rooms where a lot of the smart people that went to maybe multiple degrees and have a letter alphabet soup at the back of their name for how many certifications, you know, I, I, I want to ask the imposter syndrome question, but I hate how like cliche that's gotten, but like I've, I've struggled with it. So whatever it is, I mean, like there's a variety or there's a degree of reality to it. Everybody has it. I'm curious with, yeah, I'm curious on your thoughts about that, like experience and how you potentially, um, encountered it over the years. Yeah. Everybody's got imposter syndrome. I don't care how successful you are. Ask anybody who's super successful. I look, I listened to Dave Meltzer the other day and he was talking about having imposter syndrome at his level. You know, who Dave Meltzer is. Like I don't, he's a personal coach to three fortune 50 CEOs. Okay. All the fortune 500 fortune hundred guys have personal. Yeah. yeah. He's a coach to three of them. Like this guy's the man. Right. And you know, he was talking about his imposter syndrome. We've all got it. Uh, but just, you gotta, so this gets back. There's a, this is a longer conversation, but one of the, the baseline, uh, ideas here is that Human beings can think either emotionally or intellectually, but they can never think both of those at the same time. Okay. You're Is that thinking, what's wrong with my brain? You're the thinking emotionally <laughs> or you're thinking intellectually, right? Yeah. And when you're thinking emotionally, a lot of times that's not smart. So when you start having thoughts like this, this imposter syndrome or, or negative self-worth or negative self-image, 
you've got to understand that that's emotion and it's in your head and you've got to stop thinking emotionally and move over to the intellectual side of the thought process and go, no, 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 that's not true. Right. And then, by the way, this is also where a good coach comes in. Everybody needs a good coach, mm-hmm, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everybody. Um, I've got two. It's so fascinating. So that's when you you go to your coach or your mentor and you say, hey, man, I've been th- – and, and they'll go, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen to mm-hmm. me. You, <laughs> stop thinking like that. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's so helpful because – I got uh, slapped upside the face uh, recently by one of my partners. Um, and like what I've noticed is if I don't deal with that, the resentment starts to bubble mm-hmm. and that is just destructive. And mm-hmm. like, but they, but that's emotionally, like you said. And what I think is so fascinating is like when any, like, like when we go into onboard a new client or we're doing one of those assessments that you and I were talking about, it's like, it's, we're effectively asking the person to step on a scale. Mm-hmm. Like, how have you done so far? Mm-hmm. Right. And like, if you think about like your story of dropping out and succeeding and trying to prove to yourself, that's what I'd say a good chunk of the people are. It's not everybody at all, but like, I mean, it's a good percentage, Brian, mm-hmm. where then we're having to have an objective, like, where are we at conversation mm-hmm. and people it's a, it's rough for people because yeah, like, they don't want to break down their Facebook happy persona. Oh, I'm right. super successful. I know you are, but your wife yelled at you this morning, just like mine did. So <laughs> you put on your pants, you put on your underwear and your pants yeah. with two feet. <laughs> it, so how, how have, um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm stuck on this. Cause I think it's so helpful because I think that this is a, we we talk so often on this podcast and a lot of other places of all the mechanical, the intellectual mechanical and objective things to do, but like the real sticking points are the decision that are rooted in an emotion. And so like at, as you're going through with these, with these companies and growing them, what was driving you? Like, what was the ultimate goal? Was it exits? Was it cash flow? Or was it like a dollar amount in your bank? Or like, what were you optimizing for as you were marching towards all these different ventures? You know, entrepreneurs, and I find the same thing with, with salespeople. Um, we're warriors. We're Vikings. We're soldiers. We, we want to be in the fight. You know, we're the guy that says, put me in coach. We're the guy, you know, grabs a gun and charges the, 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 the fire. That's who we are. So the adrenaline of winning is what drives, I think, a lot of top entrepreneurs, not the money. Mm-hmm. I, I, I usually, I use this uh, example. My favorite artist ever is Kenny Chesney. I, I mean, he's just like me. His music is friggin' amazing. The guy's got more money than he can ever spend. Why in the world does he still go out and kill himself every single day doing concert tours and, and, and all this stuff when he doesn't have to, right? It's because he's out there winning. That's why. It's the winning. It's the adrenaline rush of winning and stages. and, and pe- It's got nothing to do with the money, right? And that's – I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like that. They go, go, go because it's the adrenaline rush of winning or conquering that drives them more than the money. Could, I couldn't agree with you more because like, I think about one of the biggest issues, I think it's, I, I maybe I think it's a couple fold, Brian is like, I, so when people like have, when people sold and they ended up in my podcast and I always joke around that, you know, people have this beautiful, huge Charles Schwab, pretty diversified pie chart and no one needs them and they have no purpose. They and got no fight. Miserable. Right. And, and I, but I think, it, I think what you just uh, tapped into it that I think is a huge component of that it's not just the purpose that they need, but it's, it's the outlet for the competition. 
because like I was sitting down with my uh, my kids are now in first grade. Uh, I got these uh, twin daughters, Brian, and they're playing soccer, and I was a soccer player. And I, I live 90, 98% of my mind in the future. And as I'm watching, all these floods of memories are coming back, Brian. And I'm like, I have this like animal like competitiveness that's like bubbling up inside of me. And the business is the outlet. You're a warrior. I mean, honestly, it's not, I don't, yeah, it, it, very fascinating. Yeah. We're warriors, how, man. We gotta you, fight. How did you feel like, so with all of like the, like using that warrior uh, terminology, like yours, I can't, I'm just picturing you scaling seven franchise in the landscaping business, or then you got the direct to consumer uh, for insurance and you're sitting there, you built these companies that were revolutionary or beyond success of what someone that was probably helping you thinking that you should have accomplished. So that, again, the people that went through all the school and they're sitting there and they're going, how is this guy doing this? How, how did you, like, what game did you think you were playing at that moment? Like, how did you reconcile with all these smart people who were sitting on the advice side while you were sitting in the, the driver's seat? Look, success in anything you do is a progression, right? Success is a progression, right? So the example I'll use is, is Apple. What does Apple do today, right? You have an Apple phone, iPhone? Mm-hmm. I got an iPhone. Oh, yeah. Did Apple start off making phones? Nope. They started off making motherboards. It went from motherboards to computers to educational software to iPods to phone. They progressed mm-hmm. to where they are today, right? When I started my first insurance agency that turned into the first direct-to-consumer, we started off selling insurance door-to-door. And I said, this is dumb. Why am I going door-to-door <laughs> selling insurance? I can Because half the time I'd get there and they, would be, they wouldn't qualify. So I started qualifying people on the phone before I drive out there. And I thought, well, geez, I just saved 50% of my time because I don't have to drive out there to find out if they're qualified. Well, then even if they were qualified, I still had to drive out there. And then I was like, why am I driving out there when I can stay home and sell somebody else? So I hired a guy to drive out there. And then that was working. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, if I could not pay that guy to drive out there, I'd make even more money. So why can't I do this over fax? And so I called an insurance carrier (laughs) and I said, hey, can I do fax? You know, this is how far back this goes, right? They were like, that's not (laughs) the way we do things. And I said, I know that, but will you let me? And so I was the first person to get a test case to do fax signatures in the insurance industry. Well, we built the second largest agency in the country in six months with five people competing against organizations with five or 600 because we were staying in the office selling and doing things over fax as opposed to the traditional way of having to drive all over the place. Well, then I said, well, if I can do this locally, why can't I just do this everywhere? So back then you could do a spoof number, right? So I would set up a a phone number in Memphis, Tennessee, (laughs) which was local, even though I'm sitting in Atlanta. And people would call the local Memphis number, it'd ring to Atlanta, and pretty soon I had 13 offices. I didn't. I had five people. But it looked like I had 13 offices all over the country. And now all of a sudden, we're selling insurance all over the place. And the insurance carriers are like, how the hell are you doing this? Will you come teach the rest of our people how to do it? And by the way, this company wants to buy you. So it wasn't that I was a genius. I called myself ambitiously lazy, right? I'm willing to work really hard to figure out how to not work. And so... I just figured out a better way to do it that was more efficient. Not because I was a genius. I was just damn lazy and didn't want to drive all over the town talking to people. And and weirdly enough, that's what turned into the direct-to-consumer call center space in the health insurance industry today. I mean, that's that's it. That's how it started. And it it wasn't anything amazing or miraculous. It was just, why am I driving this person's house? I don't want to drive to their house. I can talk to them on the phone, right? Yeah. So let's pull it. I want to pull it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So I want to pull that thread. So. Like I want to like your thought process in that moment allowed you to 
believe in yourself. Like, this is ridiculous how everybody else is doing it. I think we should do it this way. Where in your past or your experience, Brian, do you think that that, that became part of your DNA? Where like the, like the hay in the box thinking is not my deal. Like, where did you get that confidence or how did that start to manifest in, in you? I have no idea. I, I hate to tell you that answer, but I really have no yeah. idea. I have always said it's because I'm lazy, ambitiously lazy. I will figure out a way to do it better so that I don't have to do it the long way. That's why every company I've built, I always built so that I was not a part of the machine, right? Like yeah, I own four right. restaurants today. We do about $8 million in revenue. Most of my employees have never met me, don't know who I am. And if I sell the company, they'll never miss me. Mm -hmm. By the way, that adds intrinsic, intrinsic value in your company. It's part of what you teach, right? Yeah, I love it. Nice. Yeah. That was well placed. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon the brief interruption. I hope you're enjoying that conversation with Brian. If you like how reflective Brian is, how thoughtful he is, and how he's handled his adversity, I think one of the best things to do is level up your understanding of what do you want long-term? What is that clearly identified goal and that outcome? And then what's the purposeful action you need to be taking every day? And if you have that framework, you can handle adversity, I believe, a lot better because you have a framework for decision-making to make sure that you can stay on track to designing the life and the equity value and the cash flow that you want. Check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, which is the free access where we got samples from the academy. We've got the case study and someone projecting out the value of the business. Or you can jump right into the Do-It-Yourself Intentional Growth Academy. That's $9.95 with the $500 coupon in the show notes below. So you can level up, clarify what you want, understand how to build a valuable company. So that way you've got the knowledge and the foundation to handle adversity or something that you did not expect when it, uh, when it presents itself. So you can stay on track and make the entire journey of owning and running a company worth it. So again, thanks for tuning in and I will leave you back to the interview with Brian. There's a... Uh, there's something about the like, hey, like, it, why are we doing it this way? Yeah. That, that is just not as ingrained. And I, I think it goes back to the warrior want to win. I, I think you're, I think there's a lot of attributes to that. Ambitiously lazy, I think is a thing. And when you, I want to go back to get some of the mechanical parts about uh, your journey. So you, so you did the franchise from the lawn care. So mm -hmm. maybe we can start about, let's start maybe, Brian, just kind of curious in the different industries. And then I want to go to how you exited them and your expectations. But first, like lawn mowing and landscaping, I think kind of makes sense for someone that was trying to figure out how to make an income. With no education you, and no discernible skills, I could mow grass and dig holes, right? That, and that makes some sense. How in the hell did you get into insurance? <laughs> so the story, and by the way, the reason I got into franchising was because I wanted to sell the landscaping business because I hated it. And so I called a business broker and he said, well, you have a pretty good business here. You don't even hardly work in it. Why are you selling it? I'm like, well, because I'm tired of doing it. I don't want to do it anymore. And he said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I have no idea. He goes, well, why don't you franchise it? You've got a pretty good model here. And I was like, okay. And that's how we got into so franchising. So you went from selling it to having seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. That was the wrong direction. So like, okay. So now <laughs> to ahead. finish that story, uh, <laughs> But that's also the business that fell apart because it had the wrong partner, had the wrong lawyer. We had the wrong, uh, we call them UFOX back then, Universal Franchise Operating something. I don't know what it was. Okay. Um, and so I ended up losing that company. I lost everything um, because I made a couple of huge mistakes in business. 90% of my revenue was coming from a single general contractor. And when they fired me to hire the son of the new vice president, we oh. lost all of our business.
And then my franchisees found a loophole in my contract that allowed them to not have to pay me. And my only option was to sue everybody. And oh instead of God. suing, I just sold out. So I just walked away from that one. Well, now I had lost everything, so I didn't have any money. And so I didn't make my health insurance payments for a couple of months. And uh, they were like 130 bucks a month. And my daughter was two at the time. And we found out that she had atrial septal defect, which is a hole in her heart. And she had to have open heart surgery. So here oh I am. God. I didn't pay my insurance premiums. Now I have no health insurance. And my daughter needs open heart surgery. Well, shit. Now what am I going to do? Sell something. So my buddy who was selling insurance, I, he comes over to the house and I said, can you sell me an insurance policy? And he goes, well, I can. And I'll sell you this and it'll take a two-year wait period and blah, blah, blah. He goes, but why don't you start selling insurance with me? I'm like, dude, I am not going to sell insurance. That's like the worst thing in the world. Like, I, it's like, reminds me of Groundhog Day and Bill Murray punches. You're sitting there and you need money and yet you still have the, you still have the, the ability yeah. to say, no, I don't want to do that. Even though I need cash. I need <laughs> and so he's like, well, look how much money I'm making. He shows me a check and I'm like, ain't doing it. This, this goes on for like six months. Every month he's like, look how big my check is. And finally I was like, dude, what were you that's doing a big to, check. What were so you doing? When I lost you everything, doing daughter? I, I called it. I went back to me, a shovel and a truck. So I went from okay. seven offices to me and a little pickup truck and a shovel. And I was back to digging holes by myself out trying to make money. I had lost it. I had to sell my houses, my cars. I sold everything. Like I, I went oh, dead man. broke. So I'm back to me, a shovel and a truck. So I'm out digging holes every day and he's showing up, showing me these big checks. So finally I was like, all right, how do I sell insurance? And so he said, give me $500. And so I gave him $500. He said, you're going to go on one appointment and then you're going to, you're going to go sell insurance on your own. So I went on one appointment. We go in, we walk out. He's like, I just made 500 bucks. And I was like, wow, that was easy. He said, all right, here's 20 leads. Go sell. This was on a Monday. On Thursday, I walked into the office where everybody worked and I, I had sold 12 policies. And the guy that owns the agency, he goes, you have 12 policies? And I said, yeah. He goes, <laughs> how many leads did you get? I'm like, 20. Is that, is that good? He's like, is that good? <laughs> You're not even any idea. <laughs> that's like, he goes, that's like top 1% in the country. How the hell did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. Who knew I could sell, right? <laughs> so within six weeks, I was like 50% of the production in this insurance agency. I had no idea. That's like a skill set that's buried that nobody knew I had. Uh, and so then I was like, well, holy cow, I can sell insurance. And now I'm making way more money at night selling insurance than I was at day digging holes. So I quit the digging holes went to full-time insurance. And then because it's me, I said, you know what? I don't want to work for this guy. I'm going to start my own agency. So I, this is another long story, but I ended up having to get my wife licensed and I was under a captive contract and yada, yada, yada. Six weeks later, we had our own insurance agency and a year and a half later, I sold it to a dot-com and got Holy moved down to the Georgia shit, State man. campus. So wow. because it was a dawn of the internet and we had just developed this yeah. thing I just told you about a few minutes ago. So it wasn't that I knew anything about insurance. Quite frankly, after I gave him that 500 bucks and he sent me out to sell those 12 policies, I think the statute of limitations is over now because that was 25 years ago. I wasn't even a licensed insurance agent. They just sent me out yeah. just like, here, go sell something. I Back in the day, policies, man. It was, yeah. Didn't even have a license. <laughs> and then they were like, oh shit, you got to get a license. I'm like, really? I, how do you do that? You know? Yeah. That's like uh, the, the show suits. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I want to... I love the conversation. Um, I would, going back to like, dude, losing that much after the landscaping business, mm -hmm. like, how did you process that? It was devastating. I mean, we, 
the first thing you sell is at a rental house. Then you sell the Mercedes, then the sports car, then the motorcycle. Then you start selling your furniture. Literally. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this, this is in my book. I sold all my furniture because I didn't have any money. I mean, I was, I, that month when they fired me, they didn't pay me. And I bounced 110 checks at the bank that month, month because I wrote checks in advance for all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they didn't pay me so that I couldn't cover any of the checks. So all 110 checks bounced, $3,000 bounced check charges. The bank sends me a letter, says you're no longer welcome here. Uh, and you're just, you're, you're screwed, right? But the, the thing is, here's the thing, Ryan, what are you going to do? You have a wife and a baby. You have no choice. So you start selling everything you've got. My mother came to visit for Christmas and she's like, where's the furniture? I said, I sold it. She goes, oh my God, for Christmas, we're going to buy you furniture. So they went and bought furniture. They left after Christmas. Guess what I did? I sold the furniture because I needed money. I didn't need a couch. Mm -hmm. I needed money. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, man. So yeah, That's, you have to start well, over and you just have to go. You have no choice. I, I hear you. Um, I have some family friends that chose, yeah, the wrong choice, honestly, Brian. And it's, uh, and I, that's why I asked because it, you know, when you go from what the world thinks of you, it's the same. It's, it's a lot of these kind of concepts I see are also intertwined because, you know, when you sell a business, your identity, a lot of times goes with it, but then people are like, well, who are you without that? Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of times people are like, who are you without your car and your, and your shit? It's mm -hmm. all personal shit. So then they, there's all of that stuff that floods in. That's, I think, potentially worse than having no money. Because <laughs> like, it's like the money, it's like, I can go sell some more stuff and accumulate some more money. But like, then all of a sudden there's that, that, that mental garbage. So you, you start, so going down, going to, cause I understand operationally how you scaled then the, the uh, insurance part you sell to the, was it an actual venture capital or was it private? Yeah. Cause you said no, that was venture, yeah, the first one was private. venture capital. Second was venture capital. Third was private equity. So what's, what's your experience with venture capital? Cause that's usually high growth and you, you're diluted a lot. So like, what was that ride like? And then how did you end up choosing them and what, how did that unfold? Uh, the first one, they came to me because we had developed this direct-to-consumer thing and they were trying to sell insurance online, which had never been done, right? So we were an easy fit into their portfolio company. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not make a lot of money on that one. I think they paid me a million bucks for that. Um, and and I, I've got to realize- well, like two years ago, you had nothing. no couch. Well, that's right? true. Two years ago, I had no couch. <laughs> now I have a million dollars. Uh, you're right. But it, it, speaking in today's terms, a million dollars ain't that much money. It's kind of a funny thing to say. Fair enough. <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, and then when I went through the second acquisition, which was another venture capital, I was flying out to Sand Hill Road out in Silicon Valley every month and uh, had to go to these board meetings. I learned a lot about venture capital. Venture capital is a game and it is not a game of making profit. It is a game of flipping companies and dumping them, dumping them off on the next highest bidder. I'm probably going to make some enemies saying that, but I, uh, I can well, remember standing in a conference room in a very, very well-known VC, very well-known VC and looking at all the plaques on the wall, bought it, bought it, bought it, bought it, bought it for this, exit this, bought it for this, exit this, bought, exit, bought, exit. If there were 20 plaques, 12 of those companies were out of business. They bought them, Doesn't, ran yeah. up the value, dumped them, took their money. Those companies are gone. I remember when they bought me, we were the company they acquired me and they had rolled me into another company. And we were losing about 500,000 a month. And I was running Atlanta and they were, the tech company was based out of San Jose. And I remember going, what are you guys doing? You're, you're, you're burning a half a million dollars a month. This is stupid. I can do this profitably. In fact, 
you should stop burning a half a million a month and let me build it profitably. I'll become the CEO. I'll run this thing profitably and we'll build this out of profit and we'll have a long-term profitable company. And I went back to the next board meeting and they pulled me aside and they said, Brian, we, we don't want a profitable company. That's not what we're doing here. We're either going to make a billion dollars or it's going to fail. That's our goal. Cause we know mm -hmm. if we do 10 investments, one will make a billion, one will make a couple hundred million, one will break even and seven will fail and that's okay. So this is either going to be a billion dollar exit or it's going to fail. So we're just going to keep throwing money at it. Thank you for your service. We no longer need you because you're not on board. That's venture capital. And, and, and what I want for people, Brian, is I think that they're the, 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 just to put a container on my thoughts. I think there is a VC. It plays a, it needs to play a, a part in our economy. It needs to help with innovative technologies. It is ballooned along with private equity in a dysfunctional percentage of everything. I saw a stat in Wall Street Journal last week, Brian, that Delta has 79% of their $12 billion pension in PE and VC and REITs. And I'm like, holy shit, like it's so dysfunctional. It should be like what, five to 10? So I it, like, I think the, the biggest thing that I want for everybody is to understand, like if you're hitching your wagon with one of these, just understand the game. Like you had said, like what game are we playing? Are we playing the cash flow game? Are we playing the bio game? Are we playing the burn it, to, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the game is. So two VC sales. So then how, how was your mind getting wrapped around like what kind of experience that you wanted? If you were not liking the game, how did you start thinking about the game? Uh, I didn't dislike the game. I just started to understand the game. It's those, it's those moments. You mm. know, I'm the kid that had to bootstrap. I was a kid that had to build a company and be profitable and pay my bills. So it was like mind blowing to me when my first company got acquired. And I remember we were having this discussion with the chief marketing officer of this company that acquired me. And she was doing some really stupid stuff and spending money that made no sense whatsoever. And I challenged her in a, in a, in a executive meeting. I said, that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're paying double what I can get this for on the street. I can do this. And I said, you're just losing money for no reason. And I remember her telling me we are supposed to lose money. Our investors <laughs> expect it. And you know, you're a kid that spent the last 10 years struggling and you're just like, I don't even know what that means. Like that, that doesn't compute with me. I don't get it. And th that was the first, then the second one, when they said, we don't care about profit after that, I was like, all right, well then who cares? That's just, you know, <laughs> that's the VC game. That's a VC. I don't get to play that game because I don't have billions of dollars. Well, I think with the, 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 that I agreed in the, that unfortunate mindset has been just spreading throughout the last 10 years into the economy. We're like, Hey, you're a commercial cleaner. You're a home remodeler, whatever mm -hmm. normal business you are. It doesn't, well, no, actually it does. Yeah, it does. You have to pay your taxes. You have to pay your payroll. Like, so how, if it, once you kind of got acclimated to that game, then you got into, what was the, the third the, one was the a PE. They care about yeah. money. They care about profit because right. that's what they buy right. high growth, high profit companies. And that's what we were. Um, so that was a and different was, type of acquisition. That, was that still the insurance space? So no, that, that was, was that, that was the one? online. We were a paper performance online lead gen company. Okay, that's right. Right. Yep, yep. So we were a middleman between online lead gen. Let's and talk we, about how do you how you went from the insurance space to that and why? Yeah. So I had still owned the insurance online insurance agency, and of course, everything in the world is driven by sales, and sales are driven by leads, right? So we decided to start a lead company so we could generate our own mm. leads. That's literally all it was. Let's just start an online lead gen company to generate our own leads. 
in two and a half years, that thing just blew up. We went from zero revenue to 60 million revenue on an $80 million exit in less than three years. Like it was a side business and it turned into (sighs) the big dog just because was it was was that, was that your biggest exit for like money? And and that was back in, we called that the wild west days, right? There was no can spam. If you know what that is, we were dropping 200 million emails a day and then selling our data out the back end to other people who were dropping (laughs) another 200 million dollar, a million emails a day. And we were making, 800 to a hundred thousand to a million a month, just selling our data for other people oh my to, to, to drop uh, mail on. You can't do that today, but back then did you, did you own that? Who'd you own that with? Was it just yourself or no, there were five what, partners you, in that company? Was that, was that the, were there people that were tied into the insurance arm of the yeah, business so too? That, that's a long story, but me and my one partner owned the insurance agency. My other partner brought in two partners of his own to yeah. start the internet marketing company. So we all had split different percentage ownerships of everything okay. that we did. Um, but yeah, that, and that was That's crazy. He had experience doing yeah. that. I didn't, so he did it and it turned into the big thing. And then that turned into, a, as soon as we sold that, we sold the other one. And then everybody was like, Oh my God, we need, you need to consult with us. <laughs> um, I want to get to that part. So what have you learned about partnerships over the years? I've had, the most success in partnerships. I know this is probably, this is going to go against the grain. Uh, like I've had the most success in partnerships and I'll, and I'll tell you why. And I wrote about this in my book, right? My book right here. Here's my shameless plug, it. the dropout multimillionaire. Oh no, no shameless plug here. And we'll have the links in the show notes. Uh, and this, I, every, by the way, everything I've ever written in my books was a combination of the 300 books that are down on my bookshelf right there. So I call oh. that my brain down there. So if you recognize what I'm going to tell you, it's because I probably stole part of it. So there are four personalities to build a successful company. You've got to have all four. You have to have an entrepreneur that has the vision. You have to have a manager, which is technically the CEO. You have to have a salesperson who can go out and sell stuff. And you have to have the technician who can actually do the work. If you think about your company, you had uh, 214, you had 115 employees, right? That's what I I read about you. Mm -hmm. In Mm -hmm. there, you had a lot of technicians. You also had management that were handling all the management crap. You had salespeople that were out selling stuff. And then you had whoever the entrepreneur and CEO was. So mm-hmm. you need these personalities within a company if you're going to grow it. Well, I'll and, just be uh, to, to rally on that. I was missing those, that, that combination. So I'm on my, th- uh, it's technically my third venture, third iteration of what I've been trying to do as since I started the podcast, Brian. And now I have those combination of people. And I learned, so I've got the opposite partnership thing where I've gone through some dynamics trying to by accident architect what you just described. And by the way, you can hire out some of these personalities, but they generally cost you a lot of money if they're going to be good enough to do what you need to do. (laughs) Right. Right. So you can either bring them in as partners or you can hire them. But if you're going to hire somebody that's going to be able to do what you need to do, that's going to be an expensive individual because they're very good. And and for the listeners and for the listeners in like, that's an equity versus yes. cash flow issue. Cause like, right. Cause like you could go in and say, okay, well I need these partners mm-hmm. equity, then you're, you're covering your payroll or you can keep your, all the equity yourself, but then you have to go raise your money, yep. <laughs> raise some money and some capital to say, okay, I need to pay them to do the work. And it's not an easy choice. And the challenge is most is a tough word, but I'm going to use it. Most people that start businesses think they're a CEO and they're not. 
Okay. <laughs> Most people that start businesses are either a salesperson or a manager. And a lot of times it's a technician. Like I've been doing this for XYZ company. I'm the technician. I'm going to go do it for myself. And now I'm the CEO entrepreneur. No, you're not. You're the, still the technician. You need to hire out somebody. I, I always use the example of Joe's plumbing, right? Here's this is, I like to do things in simplistic way. When we were in the military, mm -hmm. we taught fifth grade. Joe works for XYZ company, 10 years. They bill him out at 150 an hour. He's making 50 an hour. Joe wakes up one day and goes, why the hell am I making 50 bucks an hour when they're billing me out at $150 an hour? I'm going to start my own business. I now own Joe's Plumbing. Joe's a damn good plumber. If Joe's Plumbing fails, it's not because Joe doesn't know how to plumb. It's because Joe doesn't know how to run a business. That's why Joe fails. Accounts receivable. <laughs> Joe thought he was an entrepreneur and CEO when he was actually the technician. So he is missing an entire set of business skill sets that are going to break his company. So mm -hmm. this is this is the challenge with most young entrepreneurs, not young in age, but young in business, is they think there's something they're not. And that's ego driven. And it usually is their downfall, which is, again, why you need a coach, somebody to come in and go, listen to me, you got to get dead honest with yourself. You're either the salesperson, the manager, the entrepreneur, the technician. Now, you can be an entrepreneur and a salesperson because if you can sell a vision, you can sell a product. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs and salespeople generally make terrible managers because entrepreneurs well, think when, in bullet points and salespeople live on the bleeding edge and managers have to be bam, 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 right? Got to be on the money. Everything's got to be yep. perfect. Those taxes got to get paid. Those employees got to get paid. That insurance has to get paid. You have to have the right posters hanging on the wall. That's a manager's job. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I think in bullet points, a thousand miles an hour, 30,000 feet. You ask me to do details, we're going to fail. Mm -hmm. So I recognize well, okay, my so, failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and pull, I want to pull on one, uh, one of the, the things that you said earlier, because a lot of times when us entrepreneurs will start a business and then it's growing, we started because of the lifestyle and the freedom, but mm -hmm. then we get sucked in and we're owned by this, you know, golden goose that has trapped us a golden mm -hmm. cage. And I think, I mean, from my personal experience, Brian is vision, idea, freedom, everything that you just said, and then you take it. And then what happens is the day-to-day -day operations suck you in because it's mm -hmm. like, if you don't build that client, then you don't have anything. And then right. if you don't collect that receivable, so like what happens is, you, like, unless you do what you just said, which is hire the people or, or get partners, there's no way to break free of those operations to keep the ship moving forward. Yep. And then you end up stuck in this couple million dollar hamster wheel. Where like, and then, then to, to take it even a layer further, Brian is like, what happens is then I see this, I call it the two, a couple million dollar plateau because the person's like, you've, I don't know, I'm curious if you've ever seen this where someone goes, Hey, like the, the, the consultant just goes, Hey, why don't you just go hire someone? And what's going on in their head is like, Cause I'm finally making 150 grand to pay my bills. Boom. There it is. <laughs> and then, right? It's like, why don't you go hire someone with the extra money? And so like, it, it's what no one's talking about. It's not a, it's not the product pricing fit. It's not this or that. It's like the person's finally paying themselves and they mm -hmm. can't afford that to hire someone without some projections. Biggest problem with entrepreneurs. They, they start living on that EBITDA. They start mm -hmm. living on mm -hmm. that revenue mm -hmm. and they can't afford to hire the people that if they would take a pay cut, and they would mm -hmm. hire those people, they could accelerate that business twofold and make double that amount of money, but they can't see it because they got their 30 degree blinders on. That's what I call it, by the way. Entrepreneurs have 30 degree blinders. A coach comes in with 180 degree vision and says, you don't understand if I could, that's why they plateau. If you would get yourself out of that, take a pay cut, hire somebody to do it, you'd go from 2 million to 5 million, just like that. Your income would go to 150 to 400, but you well, gotta be able to like step back to make that happen. hundred percent, Brian. And I think about like, 
for the listeners to help um, sift through, like as Brian and I are talking about the coaching is like where we come in, because we have this financial dashboard offering, Brian, that it's a financial dashboard offering that comes with a couple uh, calls per month if someone doesn't want our CFO services. So it's different than traditional coaching. But what I think is fascinating and what I've noticed that people, the experience people have is that, so like for me, like I've gone through partnership buyouts. It's like, okay, we'll figure out how to go through that financial cash flow with our the, the right way. And the, what, what's always given me confidence is I know what the hell's on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this if I can't actually make my salary or my distributions again. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't grow value, I'm not going to do it. Right. So it's this decision-making framework where I, I think the people that get to that 150, it's like, great. But then it's like, well, the next idea, well, it's like, how much is it going to cost? And when do I get my money back? Cause like, you can't make that decision in the dark, but then, so then people get, like you said, their lifestyle creeps in mm-hmm. and then it's just like this, it just sticks. Did you ever deal with that when you were in any of these businesses? Oh my, again, back to my first business that failed two big lessons I learned, right? The first lesson I learned was never get too wrapped up in one client, right? We had 90% mm-hmm. of our mm-hmm. client was wrapped or 90% of mm-hmm. our business wrapped up in one client. Number two, and by the way, we just saw this happen in 2020 again. Number two was I had no financial assets to back me up when my business took a hit. Mm. Okay. So what happened in 2020 when COVID hit? All the weak <laughs> players got washed out and everybody yep. who had built substantial assets to back themselves up are still in the game. And the problem it's we have the with these entrepreneurs- Mr. Warren Buffett always talks about, right? <laughs> these, these entrepreneurs, they live on every dime they've got, which is what I did. And they keep increasing their lifestyle as their income goes up instead of mm-hmm. replacing themselves in the business. So good, and then when yep. they hit that first bump, I was 26 years old. I was making $200,000 a year. I was living high on the hog. I thought I had Mercedes and a rental property. I was in the BVI diving when I got that phone call and my business went from, you know, here to zero Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I got home and didn't have any cash, couldn't pay my bills, bounced a bunch of checks, made a huge mistake. Oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. It, uh, So as you think about your exits and one of the, because one of the things about like the concept of intentional growth is building an asset is through sustainable future cash flows. Mm-hmm. And I think I got like, well, I'm not think I know, like I got the, the, this, the, you know, ton of bricks hit in my face when I realized that, that the sustainable cash flows the name of the, is the true game, not the VC game, but private equity or mm-hmm. small business game that sustainable cash flow. So after that first exit or, you know, even a couple of these, how did you start thinking about how to build a business after you'd gone through an exit? How did your business acumen or mindset or or whatever change? Yeah, so it's interesting. We sold that big company in 2006, 2007. You know what happened in 2008, right? Market yeah. crash. Two of the partners put all of our money into tax-free municipal bonds. Three of the partners went into real estate and stock. Real estate. Oh. Two of the partners went bankrupt after making a lot of money. And then me and Steve, the other senior partner, sat back for several years just collecting 5% interest on our money, <laughs> living like kings, right? So uh, important lesson there. Yeah, and, uh, right. One of the things, one of my investment um, guiding principles today is that I will invest 100% of my income. I will risk 100% of my income but I will not risk my assets. 
Ooh, I like that. So I like that a lot. Like if yeah. I make a million dollars this year, I will, I will throw a million dollars into investments, but I won't mm-hmm. take money out of my portfolio. So I'm not and, willing to risk I, my, I like my assets. Now I have a substantial I, I, assets and substantial income. So that makes it really easy for me to say, if you don't have those things, it makes it a little tougher, but that's, that's my. Oh, mindset. come on. You, you sold your furniture, man. You, you've already given us plenty of uh, scars to, <laughs> to be able to say that with, uh, with some humbleness. Um, Humility, I should say, uh, but like, but what, uh, I like that decision-making framework because that's very similar to what we teach in the academy. Because at the end of the day, going back to even that, Brian, at that, if if someone's making 150 and they need to get to that next level, you know, go from a couple million to that five mm-hmm. million or whatever it is, they're sacri- they're they're betting their income, mm-hmm. not it, they're they're betting their income to grow the asset value. That's pure and simple of exactly what they're doing. They're mm-hmm. not. So I, I I really like that framework because. The goal is to create an iron fortress around your assets that kick out cash. (laughs) You don't want to lose everything you've got. I've done that. It is not fun. It is not something I'm ever going to go through again. When I got have you read the Psychology of Money book? No, I've got it downstairs though. I see. I see your brain behind you there. That's your big bookshelf back there. (laughs) Uh, Well, you see probably half of it because uh, I I had this terrible habit of buying every Audible book that I listened to, and then I was like, "Why the hell am I doing this? I'm just double paying for all my books." Right. So, uh, but uh, the Psychology of Money book is fascinating, Brian, because it's truly a book about the psychology of money, not just money. And it's it talks about this guy that shorted everything in the Great Depression, made like three and a half billion dollars in the Great Depression. And the guy lost it all and killed himself compared to like the people. Right. So it just, it just shows you that it's rooted in humans and their intention. And the money is just the the means of how they're accomplishing what they originally set out to do. You know, it's funny. You look at, and unfortunately people look at like Elon Musk, right? Sold PayPal for 160 million, dumped every single dollar into the next three companies. And Same it worked out Cuban, right? It worked out really well, but that mm-hmm. only works out for, you know, one out of a thousand people. So chances are that's probably a bad idea. Well, and we, we both know that like he's juggling all this stuff with, with Twitter or X or whatever, because he's paper wealthy. He's got probably cash issues, cash flow issues. <laughs> he had to sell stock to pay his $11 billion tax bill. <laughs> right. Oh, so the, the, I, I can't, I honestly can't thank you enough for how genuine of a conversation this is because like, this is the real stuff, Brian. And, it, it, and I'm trying to bring more of this, like, cause the, the, the decisions to grow a business are just, I mean, we can sit down and talk for weeks about all the mechanics behind it, but like we're people that are doing all these things. Mm-hmm. And so Brian, with what, your, what you're doing right now with your four restaurants and the coaching, the podcast, the books, like it sounds like you're kind of finding your flow zone of what brings you joy and, and while making an impact and while making some money. And so that I get, we've got these three things that intentional growth is create wealth, enjoy work, make an impact, kind of live in the intersection mm-hmm. of those, kind of similar to Dan Sullivan's Four Freedoms. But I'm with that in mind, how are you making decisions now to protect your, the lifestyle that you've built? Because I think that's important to make sure that we don't say yes to things if they don't adhere to what you're trying to do. So do you have, like, how do you, how do you go through that? Well, part of it is what I just said. I don't risk assets when I do investments. Uh, that's a big one. Um, and I have enough income that I can make a lot of investments. I'm in building a new restaurant right now. That's 1.3 million. Uh, I'm building another condo down in Florida on downtown Tampa. That's another 1.6. So these are investments that I can make that I would say the overriding thing in the back of my brain is, can I get hurt? 
and how badly? Well, if I'm only losing my income, I can't really get hurt. It's going to suck if I lose money, but it's not going to hurt me long term. And when I lose mm-hmm. money and people, people say, oh my God, you lost money doing that. Like, yeah, I know, but it really isn't going to affect my lifestyle. So mm-hmm. my lifestyle is, is, you know, I like to, I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a hundred millionaire. I'm, I'm none of those things, but I can do anything I want, go anywhere I want. I mm-hmm. mean, and I don't have to worry about what it costs as long as I can maintain that lifestyle. Um, and I'm not risking my assets and my, my decision-making on investments, then I'm, I'm in a good place. Love it. Where did you shift from this opportunity is amazing. I'm going to sell insurance and I'm going to scale this company, grow, grow, grow to what am I going to lose and how can I get hurt? How did, when and how did that shift happen? Yeah. So remember when I, when that first company collapsed and I lost everything and I've got my wife and my baby and I can't afford to feed them and I'm selling my furniture that burned into my soul. Don't ever (laughs) take a chance on losing what you have again, ever. Right. And I remember back in my landscaping days, um, I was mowing the grass and doing landscaping for one of the Atlanta Braves. His name's Terry Pendleton. He was a third baseman for the Braves. And I remember when I met Terry, a uh, super great guy. And Terry told me, he said, I said, ask Terry one day. I said, Hey Terry, what's up with all these athletes that lose all their money? And he said, Brian, here's the challenge. These guys come from nothing. They start making millions. They suddenly think they're financial geniuses just because they're good at sports. And then they think they're going to turn their millions into billions and they lose it nine times out of 10. Mm-hmm. Just because you're good at something and just because you can make a lot of money at it does not make you a financial genius. So he said, I don't risk my money. He said, I, my money is sitting in T-bills. My house <laughs> is paid for. My cars are paid for because I make my money playing baseball. That's where I make my money. I'm not worried about making 6% on my investments. No, no, keep it. No, keep it. I'm worried about making money playing baseball. And when I retire, I know where my money's at. It's sitting there and it's mine and it's never going to go anywhere. And so when I, that, the, I, I'll never forget that. Life. He called it the McDonald's safety net. So I've yeah. coined that phrase. So if everything goes to shit in my business, I know I can work at McDonald's and maintain my lifestyle. Ooh, I love that. That is awesome. That's what man. we call the McDonald's safety net, <laughs> that, right? That is the I'll be driving my Ferrari net. down to McDonald's, but I can <laughs> yeah. I will keep that Ferrari. Dr- yeah. <laughs> I love it. I so love when I got it. to the point where we had money, I just I rolled into my Terry Pendleton McDonald's safety yeah. net. I'm never going to risk uh my lifestyle. And as long as I don't push my lifestyle up to something stupid, you know? Yeah. I got a small plane, not a jet. I got a small boat, not yeah. a big one. I got a small yeah. condo yeah, yeah. at the beach, not a giant one. You would love the psychology of, Mo- of money book, Brian. There was a, there was a chapter six, I think it was, it was, it's one page and it was talking <laughs> about, it's, it's, and it's about, it's about material shit. And this guy goes, um, we all want, you know, everybody wants that flashy car so everybody can look at them. Right. And he, and this guy was like a, a New York times reporter, some or author for like decades. So he, he's, he's like studies people and behavior mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Well, back in the day, he was a valet when he was like in high school or something. He's like, here's the deal. You know what? I had grabbed those keys. And what he goes, what I realized when someone has a, and this is a long time ago, when someone's got a hundred thousand dollar Corvette or something, now it's probably like 400. But <laughs> and he goes, the one thing is I, he goes, what I realized is the people don't have any clue who's driving that car. They only see the car. So the actual opposite of what you want is what you want everybody to look at you, but they look at the car. Mm-hmm. And what the second thing is you can guarantee they have either a hundred grand less in cash or a hundred thousand dollars more in debt. 
Yep. And then the chapter was over. And his whole point was that after your, after your needs, it's all ego driven. And I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. And if it, by the way, I don't poo poo anything that like, if you want and can afford something, like go for it. I like what uh, Ed Milet says. No, it's Bradley. He said, you're driving that car. And, and look, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I, I admit it. I have a Ferrari. If he can afford it, like, like go for it. Like, like good for you. It's not that he, he asked this guy on his podcast, says, why, why do you have that car? He goes, cause I like it. He goes, no, no. You like the way you think other people feel about you when you're driving that car. That is an ego <laughs> car. That's all it is. And if you can afford it, great, but don't tell me yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And I, the, the example I use is I also have a Tesla plaid. Right. So I have my garage, a Tesla plaid nice. and I got a Ferrari. I want to ride one of those. So I want to ride one of those. If I take both of those cars and I drive them down to a parking lot and park them, that Tesla is faster than the Ferrari. It has better electronics than the Ferrari. It's more comfortable. It has a better sound system. It has self-drive. There is everything in the world is better about that Tesla. Nobody cares about the Tesla. They want to go look at the Ferrari because it's an ego car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know. I love it, man. Yeah, but like, but like, call it what it is. It is. It's okay, right? It is it's what totally it is. okay. Yeah, like, and it's okay to want that stuff. That's. Uh, yeah, I was. I, I just got done on a Dan Sullivan kick, and he was just like, I mean, it's okay to want a bunch of stuff. Like, you don't have to apologize for wanting it as long as it makes sense with the overall math equation of how you're running your life. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything I haven't asked that I should? <laughs> that you should? I don't know. It depends on what your audience wants to hear. That. That's that. <laughs> fair, fair rebuttal. You know? uh, but, yeah. I don't know. Depends on what your audience wants to hear. No, I, I, I've just enjoy, I've, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this, Brian. I, I, I just, I really enjoy the authentic ex- explanation of your journey. It, two final questions then, man. Um, one is where can everybody get in touch with you? Brianwillmedia.com. Brianwillmedia.com. My books, my podcasts, my coaching programs, pot, blogs, everything's on there. Cool. And then the last question is, I love to know what people's definition of intentional is because the name of the show, and I've learned a lot from people's uh, answers. What's the word intentional mean to you? Wow. Put me on the spot there. Let's see, Ryan. Intentional. Uh, I guess intentional would be that I am doing it for a specific purpose. And then identifying that purpose is really what the goal would be. Because if you're doing it blindly, then it's not intentional, is it? It's just luck. It's just luck. (laughs) I love it. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had an absolute blast. Ryan, this was one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you, sir. As you probably could tell, I really had a lot of fun having that conversation with Brian. I think there's so many entrepreneurs where we struggle with some sort of, you know, dropout factor, whatever, whatever your factor is that's driving you to own and run a company, be an entrepreneur. We've all got that fire in our belly. Sometimes the flame goes a little dull, but I believe to stay passionate, to make it all worth it, having that clearly identified outcome is crucial and building a valuable company based on sustainable cash flow is going to get you what you want and having a framework, a lot of times it's the financials and an operational uh, dashboard that can give you a decision-making framework to say, okay, well, something bad happened. How do we deal with it to stay on track so we can manage the money against the goal to make sure that we're just making it all worth it. And we don't have to wonder every single day, are we on track, off track? Are we getting closer to our goal or further away from our goal? How do we handle this decision? If you want to eliminate the gut feeling, eliminate the half-baked data, I think one of the best things to do is check out our complimentary financial assessment. All you have to do is schedule a discovery call with me and my team. So that way I'll ask you some questions and understanding where you're at, where you want to go, 
And if it's a good fit, I can tee you up to my team where all you have to do is book your complimentary discovery call. My team will plug in their financial dashboard and then we'll analyze it and then we'll bring it back to you with our thoughts. You'll be able to see the dashboard and you'll be able to see your numbers in a way that probably gives you a lot of peace so that way you can handle adversity or anything that's going to be coming down the pipeline that you're not aware of or you don't know how to handle. I just... I think it's so stressful running a company anyways, but flying blind just doesn't have to be a thing. So you can get as much data and as much forecast and visibility as you possibly can have, and then you can manage all the crap that we have to deal with anyways. So check out the discovery call and financial assessment. And I just want to say again, thanks everybody for tuning in. I very much appreciate and value the support. <music>